0: You are listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP. <music> While the escalation of tweets, if not actions, between the United States and North Korea have dominated the headlines for several months, the announcement last Thursday that President Trump and North Korea's Kim Jong-un was a showstopper. Few have followed Korea more closely than our guest, Scott Snyder, the Senior Fellow for Korea Studies and Director of the Program on U.S.-Korea Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Scott is the author of South Korea at the Crossroads, Autonomy and Alliance in an Era of Rival Powers, which was published just a few weeks ago. He has written extensively on South Asia and Korea and served as the Project Director of the Council on Foreign Relations Independent Task Force on Policy towards the Korean Peninsula. His visit to Dallas is a return to Texas, as he received his BA from Rice University, which was followed by a Master's in East Asian Studies at Harvard University. Great to have you with us tonight. And what wonderful timing for you to be with us. Absolutely. So in your blog post the day after the summit was announced, you wrote, Kim Jong-un's invitation to President Trump is both stunning and predictable. I get the stunning. But why they're predictable?
1: Well, the predictable part has to do with the fact that President Trump had been angling for this invitation, it seems, almost since he was a presidential candidate, at which time he said that he would be happy to sit down for what I have termed a hamburger summit with Kim Jong-un. Even though he has made a lot of threats, he's also interspersed those threats with comments like Kim Jong-un is a smart cookie and saying things to suggest that if they could only sit down, that they would really be able to make a lot of progress in terms of solving North
0: Korea. Already we're seeing, I think, some walking back from both sides. Is that just a walking back from trying to lower expectations? Or if you were gonna handicap the summit, what chance is it that it'll really occur? Between
1: now and May, I think that we're gonna see an extraordinary set of ups and downs as both of these leaders uh, position themselves around the potential for this particular meeting. In some ways, I think that Trump and Kim Jong-un are like two fishermen who have caught the big one, but they're not sure that their poll is going to hold. So it's not clear whether they're going to be able to reel him in. You know,
0: it reminds me a little bit of when Menachem Begin and President Sadat met. But when you think about that, there was already so much discussion going on. And here, just today, Rex Tillerson was certainly fired in a pretty tough fashion. Who is going to be staffing President Trump? Or is he really going to go in there as a lone ranger?
1: That's a great question. Uh, We all know that President Trump said that his best foreign policy advisor is his own brain. At present, there is not a clear, visible channel or staff that would necessarily be Prepared to negotiate all of the specifics that one would normally expect Mm -hmm. related to this kind of meeting. I mean, normally a summit like this is the icing on the cake. That's right. We like our presidents to be closers, but Kim Jong Un comes from a completely different political culture. And in some ways, it seems like Trump is playing to Kim Jong Un's culture or even playing on his home court. Because really, if we're going to have a meeting at this
0: early stage, all they can do is set the parameters and give political guidance. We were talking about this this morning at our staff meeting and someone said, well, what occurred before wasn't working and maybe this very unconventional method might accomplish something.
1: If they can start a process and if it can be followed up by a well-staffed kind of bureaucratic process that actually identifies shared actions that both sides can take in order to follow up on expressions of intent by the leaders, then maybe that is a process that could have a positive outcome. But there's a lot of risk
0: in that as well. Scott, do you think what President Trump has been doing over the course of the last several months, ever since the administration really started, the maximum pressure, did that drive Kim Jong-un to issue this invitation? How much credit should President Trump get?
1: I think President Trump deserves some credit, maybe not as much as he thinks he deserves, but I think he does deserve some. The maximum pressure campaign has been widely regarded as effective. Interestingly, I think also the rhetorical attacks on Kim Jong-un have been a little bit more effective in drawing Kim Jong-un himself out than many people would have liked to believe. I wouldn't have recommended that course of action, but as I look at it, one thing that President Trump has done is that he's focused people on the risks and costs of war, and in a weird sort of way, It makes the idea of making a deal so much more palatable. Whereas every other president, I think, would have been trapped. They would have gone, tried to talk to North Korea. Everybody would have said, no, we can't do that. But Trump actually, I think, has created space in a way to make a deal. It might end up being a bad deal, but it'll be a deal and it won't be war.
0: If you were advising President Trump or the administration, where might this meeting take place? At the DMZ?
1: My recommendation as of last Friday was that the leaders should aim for the demilitarized zone. And I suggested that maybe they should consider doing it trilaterally and have the South Korean president involved as well, in part because I think the South Koreans could provide the staffing that we don't necessarily have at our disposal to be able to do detailed negotiations with the North Koreans. But we'll have to wait and see. I think the Swiss have offered to host, of course, Kim Jong-un spent part of his high school years in Switzerland, so who knows?
0: For a few months or a year, we really don't know, do we? Well, that's a perfect segue to talk a bit more about your book, and in the subtitle is the word alliance. How do the objectives between South Korea and the United States differ?
1: Well, I think that the objectives between the two around denuclearization actually are fused together. Mm -hmm. It's really about means. How do you get there? If you're the South Korean president, and you hear the US president talk about going to war, that scares you because the retaliation is all gonna be right in your lap and it's gonna be enormously costly. And so I think that what the South Korean president has tried to do is to say, yes, denuclearization, but we have to do it peacefully. So in a way, what the South Korean president needs is he needs the North Koreans to commit to denuclearization, he needs Trump to commit to doing it peacefully. And then he can have his pathway of peaceful denuclearization which is currently just closed.
0: You know, I was in South Korea a few years ago and I was struck how at so many of the meetings the topic of reunification came up. Where does that stand now? I guess from the government's perspective as well as from the population at large. In a way for
1: both Koreas for such a long time unification has kind of been the holy grail for their foreign policy Mm -hmm. and for their domestic policy. It has been the thing, the objective that everyone rhetorically said they wanted But in fact, the two Koreas have been drifting apart. Most notably, if we look at polls regarding generational attitudes toward Mm -hmm. unification, if you're over 60, then two-thirds of the people want unification. If you're under 40, then basically only about 40% really want unification because they're
0: going to have to pay for it. And a key player in all this would be China.
1: It's a little bit strange because ever since January 1st, when Kim Jong-un reached out to the South Koreans, China's concerns and interests have been sidelined to some degree. And yet China is a critical partner in terms of sanctioning North Korea, putting pressure on North Korea. Clearly China has an enormous geopolitical interest in maintaining a good relationship with both Koreas, and particular trying to
0: make sure that a unified Korea is friendly to China. Now we have time just for one more question before we go and meet all of our members. Is there any realistic substitute for the U.S. security umbrella down the road? At present, I don't see it. There's an interesting question.
1: If China becomes more powerful than the United States and if China becomes the global rule setter That's the point at which I think that the security alliance could come into play. But for the foreseeable future, as long as the U.S. is the global rule setter, And as long as the U.S. is more powerful than China militarily, in particular in Asia, I think that the South Koreans are going to be looking to Washington for security.
0: Well, Scott, I want to thank you for joining us. And I know your book has been doing well, but I think it's getting a little boost probably this week. The book is South Korea at the Crossroads, Autonomy and Alliance in an Era of Rival Powers. Scott Snyder. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys and 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.